Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you right now to turn in them to Matthew chapter 8. Let's, uh, let's be praying for the team that left yesterday that I believe right now is actually on an airplane on their way to Bogota. Let's be praying for them. A uh, large number of people from, from this church went on that. And then let's pray for, uh, for the two that went to Switzerland. And I think they have landed in Zurich and they're, they're on their way to Walsenhausen. So um, big things happening. Let's be praying for those who are, who are serving this week. I, I love, I love, I love, I love that they are taking their spring break and they are serving Christ with it overseas. I think that is a beautiful thing. So uh, our text today is Matthew chapter 8 verses, let's see, verse 5 all the way through 13. So here's the word of God. It says, when he, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus says, go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Ask the Lord's help again. Father, we come before you today very needy of dependent on your grace and on your mercy to us. Even to understand the Bible, we need your spirit. So Father, I pray that your spirit would be moving. We pray together in one accord that your spirit would be moving here in this place, helping us to see things about Jesus and about faith and about man and about the gospel and about the nations. Help us, Father, to see those things and, and apply those things. Lord, I, I, I pray that we would not let the word of God just be facts that roll around in our heads, but that you'd be shaping us and molding us through your word. Lord, we pray for the two mission teams that are out. We pray that you would protect them on the way. I pray that you would um, help the Switzerland team to be very, very fruitful in their work and their labor. I know they're going to engage in some really hard work and I pray that they'd be able to do that with good health and strength and that you would use this to be a great encouragement to our missionaries there. Just, just a, a shot in the arm for Scott and Monty. Lord, would you please use this trip to help them and encourage them. And for the team heading to Bogota, Lord, I pray for them. I pray for safety along the way. I pray for fruitfulness in ministry. I pray that you'd be working in their hearts and as they, as they look around and see what you're doing, especially as they get to the tribal area, Lord. I pray that you would help them to uh, see some of the things we're going to see this morning in your word, just right there in front of them. Your heart for the nations. 
So now, Lord, for the next 35 minutes or so, I pray for your help. I pray that the sermon that I preach, that is, that is heard, rather, would be better than the one that I preach. That, that through your spirit, you would do great things that I haven't even thought of. And I pray for any who are here today feeling like the outcast. Show them your grace and your mercy towards the outcast. And help us all, Lord, as outcasts to rejoice in your mercy towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever played that game, uh, Would You Rather? Anyone ever play that game, Would You Rather? It's a really fun game. With, you're presented with two options, and you have to decide which one you'd rather be. Like, you, two options, and you, which one would you rather be, or what, what would you rather have happen to you, or what would you rather do? So that's the game. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, Ready? I, I asked uh, my, my home group to help me crowdsource this uh, game. So, would you rather fight Wonder Woman or Captain America? You don't have to answer a lot. I, I know you have deep thoughts about that, though. Would you rather find true love or be surprised by a multi-million dollar inheritance? Would you rather go to a dinner party way overdressed or way underdressed? <laughs> Would you rather win a free lifetime supply of Nutella? I don't even really know what that is. <laughs> or a lifetime supply of Jiffy peanut butter? <laughs> Would you rather be a Roman centurion? Born outside of the covenant people of God. Raised in a pagan religion by pagan parents, considered unclean by the covenant people of God, right? Who are all around you, but who genuinely believe in Christ, but who genuinely believes in Christ, or a good religious person who grew up in a Christian home and was baptized into the church and did all of the religious motions that we do, but who never really made the faith your own. So the last one's not really part of the game. <laughs> it's serious. In our passage, that's the two that are pitted together here. And I'm just asking you, what would you rather? What would you rather? They're being compared. Of course, it's more general than that though, right? What's really pitted against each other here in our passage are the people who are called the sons of the kingdom. That is, the, it's a reference to ethnic Israel, many of whom reject the gospel, most of whom reject the gospel, reject Christ, and people from the nations, the nations, people from the east and from the west who come to Jesus like this centurion with faith in Christ alone. And you know which one you want to be, right? You know, you know which one you want to be. It's not really a contest for the one there is outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And for the other, there's a reclining at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, reclining in God's presence with the covenant people of God. That's where this passage goes today. It takes us to the nations and God's global purposes for the spread of his gospel and the gathering of his flock among the nations and the difference between true faith and religious motion. One of the things that is different about the gospel of Matthew or different about all of the gospels, different about narratives in general in the Bible, 
different, say, from Ephesians or Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians is that Matthew is mostly narrative. You know what I mean by narrative? It's mostly a story. It's a true story, but it's mostly told like a narrative, a story. He, Matthew tells us what happened, what people said to Jesus, what Jesus said in response, the things Jesus did, the things that people did to Jesus, all of those things. I mean, there are big portions of Matthew that are very similar to Romans, like, like teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, which we were in all of last year. But then there are big portions like what we have today called narrative. And Matthew recounts for us the things that took place. And he does so selectively. John, in the Gospel of John, it tells us that if everything was recorded, the world could not hold the, the material that happened in those years of Jesus' ministry. So the, it's all very selective and it's carefully chosen. And there's a purpose behind it. It's so that we might see things about Jesus and about man and about God. With narrative, we have to try to discern what God wants us to see in the story. That's, that's, that's how you study narrative. What does God want to teach me through this story? Thus, to understand part of the story here, this our part today, verses 5 through 13, better this morning, I, I thought it would be helpful if we just meditate on the big themes that you hear. The, the things that Matthew wants us to learn about Jesus and God and man in this true story. There are a few things emphasized here. A few things this story demonstrates. So here's what I'll do. I'm, I'm going to point out four things that this, this story demonstrates. And then as a result, like maybe three things that should happen in our lives because of what those, because of those four demonstrations. So a few concerns at the end when we wrap up. And then but before that, four things this story demonstrates. And that's how we're going to try to squeeze all the juice out of this fruit for our nourishment this morning. So the first thing this story demonstrates for us, the theme that is being repeated in Matthew, is Jesus' concern for the outsider. Now, that's exactly the lesson that the previous passage taught us, right? Remember? Uh, Jesus healed an unclean leper. If there's an outcast, it's a leper. The leper would have been the, epi the epitome of the outsider, right? I don't know why epitome is spelled epitome, but it is. <laughs> they were unclean with a capital U, the lepers. They, if you ask the people of that day, tell me who an unclean person is. Give me an example of an unclean person. The first person they'd say is a leper. Give me, a, give me, give me a, like a, a snapshot of who it is that is like an outsider. It's, it's the leper. The outcast, the leper. And yet, as we saw last week, Jesus had mercy. First story out of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had mercy on the outcast. He healed the leper who comes in first when it comes to who's the outsider or who's the outcast, but coming in a strong second, if you were to ask a good Israelite in Capernaum, who are the unclean people? They would say, our occupiers. The Romans, people like this man, the pagans. This unclean centurion had a few strikes against him that made him an outsider. You see, the Jewish people, did, they despised Roman rule. They believed that Roman rule was like judgment and that the Messiah was going to come and free them from this rule. This was occupation. And even if this guy was noble, and we have evidence in another gospel that he was, even if he were noble, 
he would still embody that rule, that oppression, and the people did not like it or associate with the occupiers. But even more significant was that this guy was a Roman. He was not of the covenant people of God. He was outside of, he was a Gentile. You know what the Jews called Gentiles? Dogs. They're pagans. So like the leper, the centurion was an outsider. His servant who, who was suffering here was an outsider. But note what Matthew is demonstrating for us in these first two stories of chapter eight. Jesus has regard for the outsider and the outcast. He had mercy on this unclean man and on his unclean servant. And isn't that good news for us? I mean, there's a couple of reasons why that's good news for us. One, you're an outcast. You're an outsider. Like we can identify in the story more with the Roman, right? Than with, say, the Jewish religious elite of the day. We're not, we're, we're not, of, the, we're not of the covenant people of God, Israel, like by birth. We can relate to the outsider. Maybe you even feel like an outsider this morning. Maybe that's, maybe that's just, I, I feel like an outcast. Oh man, this is good news for us. Jesus has mercy on the outcast. He has mercy on those who are outside. That's the first thing I think this story demonstrates for us. Second, Matthew brings into view for us the marvelous faith of this outsider. And I say that his faith is marvelous because Jesus, the, 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 the son of God, marvels at his faith. It was the kind of faith maybe you might expect from the covenant people of God within Israel. God had so incredibly and particularly worked with his people throughout history. And you would think that by now, there'd be marvelous faith among them all, right? I mean, this is the people, after all, that God delivered out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He parted a sea for them. I mean, just picture that. The water stood in mounds on either side as they walked across on dry ground. Egypt followed and they were drowned. I Amazing work that God did among this people. He saved them. He spoke to them through the prophets. This is the people who had God's word, the Torah. The people who were expecting the Messiah, who knew the promises, who, who would tell their kids, one day a Messiah will come and rescue us from our oppression. But instead of finding this marveling worthy faith among them, Jesus finds it in this Roman centurion, a Roman soldier who likely grew up in a pagan home, very foreign to the worship of the one true God, and likely most unaware of God's dealings and promises to Israel. A man whom the Jews would consider a dog, uncircumcised, separated from the hope of God, outside of Israel. That's the guy who comes to Jesus. I mean, he's got this big need in his life and he has seen something about Jesus and that many of Jesus' own people hadn't seen and won't see. And so he came to Jesus and he came by faith. He came with marvelous faith, trusting in Christ. So this Roman officer who has under his charge a century. That's why they call him a centurion. He has a century under his charge. It's a hundred foot soldiers in an ancient army. He had the servant, most likely a child because of the Greek word that's used there, who was home ill and suffering terribly. 
The centurion had observed something about, amazing about Jesus. He had, he had come to Jesus, convinced that Jesus could, upon his word, heal his servant. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's suffering terribly. And Luke, we, we see that he's dying. And right away, even though some commentaries disagree, I think there's something amazing in what the centurion says and how he says it. This Roman centurion, I mean, picture this, guys. A Roman officer calls Jesus Lord. A lot of commentaries don't think that's a big deal. I don't think it's a simple nicety, like how a police officer might call a murder suspect sir when they arrest them. That's the example that one commentary used. I, I don't think it's that at all. I mean, I don't think that fits the context. I don't think that bears the scrutiny of the context. I mean, for one, we don't have any evidence that Romans ever used niceties at all <laughs> with the people that they ruled. And lots of things suggest the opposite. But the big reason is because Lord has become a significant way to refer to Jesus in Matthew. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Remember what Jesus said? He said, not everyone who calls me what? Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And now already twice in chapter 8, Jesus is called Lord by outcasts and outsiders who come to him by faith, seeking his grace. So, the leper did that, and now amazingly this Roman centurion did that. And I'm convinced that addressing Jesus as Lord is a demonstration of his faith. But it's just the beginning of this man's demonstration of faith. Jesus offers to come to the man's house to heal the servant. The soldier, though, does not consider his house worthy of Jesus' presence. And that's amazing, right? I mean, the centurion, after all, was a Roman he was an elite. His salary was very good, I read. He probably had a nice house. He definitely had servants, right? He has one that's ill. Servants to keep his house clean and nice. I mean, he had a significant role of authority in Palestine. He had status, power, money. He had it all. And yet he did not think that his house was worthy of the Lord. I think that alone is amazing. That speaks to his view of Jesus and what Matthew wants us to really notice is the amazing faith of this man and the way that he understands Jesus' authority. The centurion firmly believes that Jesus has the authority to simply command a miracle and it would be so. So he believes that Jesus doesn't have to go to his house. I mean, he didn't even tell Jesus where he lives, right? He didn't even say, hey, if you say the word about that house, it's the, the third one on the corner there and the servant that's lying in the first. He didn't even say that. I mean, there's so many assumptions he's making. Jesus knows this, this servant of mine. Jesus knows where my house is. He could save this boy with his word. It's amazing. The centurion uses his own authority as an example of what, it, of what he believes Jesus can do with his own authority. The centurion had certain powers, right? Just like an officer in any military, he could tell a man to go and the man would go or come and the man would come or do something and the man would do something, right? He could say it and it would be accomplished. And it seems to me that he's arguing that if he, even he, with his limited earthly authority, could affect some change with his mere word, then surely the Lord, right? The Lord could heal this boy without needing to go to his house. He could simply say the word. The more I pressed into this, the more gobsmacked I was 
the more amazed I became, the more marveling I did about this man's faith. This Roman didn't have any of the prerequisites for having that kind of faith. And that's, that's what's so amazing about this. He, he wasn't aware of the prophecies. He didn't grow up in Sunday school, hearing the stories, seeing the flannel graphs. If you're old enough, you know what I mean. He didn't know about the promises of the Messiah. He didn't know probably much about the Torah at all. He didn't know about God. He didn't know about his attributes. He'd never been to seminary like some of the religious leaders of the day who couldn't see what he was seeing. But he saw Jesus. He had heard what Jesus was saying and doing and he knew in his heart that this man was no ordinary man. He had power. Jesus had authority to do things with his mere word. And not, not simply like earthly authority. This is a higher authority. This is not just a, an authority that is granted to you by some earthly power. An authority that's enforced by the edge of a metal sword. This is an authority that comes from God. You say the word, Jesus, and my servant can be healed. I know that. I'm a man under authority. I know how that works. I know, I know you can do this. He knew. Jesus, if you say go, that one will go. If you say live, that one will live. If you say the word, my servant will get out of his bed and he'll be healthy. I think we ought to be amazed. This is amazing faith. Jesus, the son of God, marveled at this man's faith because it was amazing faith. The centurion simply knew that if Jesus said it, it would be so an amazing faith from an outsider, a foreigner. The third thing this story demonstrates for us is God's eye for the nation. I, this all comes together, okay? Because we're this, this is all the gospel. We're just moving around different parts of it. But it, it demonstrates God's eye for the nations. Jesus used the faith that he found in this outsider to teach us something amazing about God's plan in this world. You see, you would have expected this faith again from Israel. I've said this a few times. Not from a Roman. But that, that does not mean that this Roman is super special. It means that God has his eye, not just on Israel, but on the nations. Let me, let me read the passage again to you, okay? Listen again to verses 10 through 12. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the, at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that was must have been mind-blowing to someone who was steeped in the Judaism of that day. They did not consider the nations to be beneficiaries of God's grace. But Jesus says here, clearly they will be. So many from the east of Israel, right? Like places like Iraq and China and Thailand and Vietnam and Siberia and Korea and Papua New Guinea and many from the west, like America and Nigeria, Kenya, Germany, Switzerland, Colombia, and even Italy, where this Roman soldier was likely from. Many from the nations will come and recline at Abraham with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's amazing. They're not ethnic Jews from, from those places. He's not talking about that. He's not, saying, he's not talking about people who are like from the Jewish nation who's been spread out. He's talking about people from those nations. 
They are Gentiles. And what Jesus is saying here is clearly is that those outsiders are in the eye of God, in the saving eye of God. I love that we are preaching this passage today after seeing a team leave for Colombia and two leave here for Switzerland to serve the great cause of missions. I love that this passage comes in a year when we are blessed to be able to send more mission teams than ever before, than we have before. Some to South America, to Asia, to Europe. I think it's all part of what Jesus is saying here. He has his eye on the nations. Or to put it another way, the way that the Gospel of John does, he is going to gather his flock. Let me, let me read that to you. It's, it's made more clear, this global purpose of God. John 10, 14 through 16. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I mean, just think of that. Jesus will have one flock, but that flock will not merely be those who are of this fold, right? Like the, those of Israel. Jesus has other sheep. And he must bring them in also, and they will listen to his voice. Other sheep, like this centurion. (laughs) Other sheep, like Christians from the tribes of the Amazonas in Colombia and Venezuela. Other sheep, like the Buryats and the Altai in Siberia. Other sheep, like Kenyans and Nigerians and Frenchmen even. (laughs) And Kurds. Other sheep, like us. This one of the reasons you ought to be amazed is that this gathering of, 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 of God, of others outside of this fold, that's our story. I mean, that's why you are a believer today. If you're a believer, God is gathering his sheep from the nations. So that's the third thing this story demonstrates. God has a, his saving eye on the nations. The fourth, the fourth thing this story demonstrates is the reality of heaven and hell. So reclining with Abraham in the kingdom, I think is language that is used to describe eternal life. It's used to describe heaven or life everlasting with Christ. It, it's, it's language that describes salvation. These many from the east and from the west, sheep whom Jesus gathers, will share in the inheritance with Abraham. In other words, they will be part of the kingdom. They will enjoy eternal life with Christ. But there's the other side of this too, right? The sons of the kingdom, which refers to people who are part of ethnic Israel, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, he says. That's graphic, isn't it? It's worth thinking about that description that he puts here. Outer darkness. And what does that mean? Outer darkness. It means far away from the light of life. It means no hope, no rescue, no light at the end of the tunnel. No light. No rescue, no way forward, no redemption. No salvation. And weeping, which could also be translated wailing along with gnashing of teeth. I mean, just paints a picture of intense pain, suffering, hurt that goes unquenched forever. No joy, no comfort, no happiness, nothing but wailing and deep hurt. That's the reality of hell. No comfort at all. Darkness, wailing, gnashing of teeth. Now, what's the big difference, at least 
The big difference we can see in this passage between the sons of the kingdom who will be cast into the outer darkness and those from the east and the west who will recline at Abraham's table, at the table with Abraham. I think the answer is in verse 10. This marvelous faith that Jesus sees in the centurion, he is not seeing in Israel. That's the difference. The outsider is trusting in Jesus Christ while Israel is by and large rejecting Christ. And I know, I know I've been beating this drum for a while lately, every week. But friend, I think it's being beat here again. This is a warning. The reason why many of the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into hell is because they have presumed upon their religious heritage. It's because they've presumed upon their, righteous, their religious deeds, their, their self-righteousness, their motions, their ceremonies. They trusted in themselves and their piety, their good Christian heritage, their works. And they will be condemned because by those things, no one will be saved. No sinner, listen to me, no sinner will be saved by their heritage. Growing up in church, calling yourself a Christian, doing so many Christian things, it will not save you. You need more than those things to overcome your sinfulness, right? To be made right before a holy God, you need more than mere motion. You need the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. So many sons of the kingdom will be kicked out. While many outsiders who trust in Christ alone will share with Christ forever. Those who have this, the same kind of marvelous faith as this centurion, they will see Jesus as he is, the Lord and Savior of the world, and they will be saved. By God's grace, all by God's grace, nothing to boast in. Not that we're more righteous. It's that our righteousness is Christ's. We stand in him. They, those who believe like that, shall recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I, you know, I, I, I honestly believe that this is just a relevant warning today to us as it, is, as it was to them. Jesus is warning us not to rely on the very things these sons of the kingdom were relying on. Rely instead, like the centurion, on the person and work of Christ. On what Christ could do. On his authority. On his grace. Rely on his perfect righteousness. Jesus never sinned. Even though he went to the cross like a guilty sinner, he never sinned. He stood there like a guilty sinner for you and for me. Rely on his work on the cross. He paid for our sin in full. Rely on the truth that the tomb is empty, right? Jesus has risen to new life and all who are in Christ will rise too. I, this is marvelous faith, not unlike the faith of the centurion. Everyone who trusts in Christ like that, everyone, I, I love this, everyone from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone who believes like that are Jesus' sheep for whom he laid down his life and whom he is now gathering from the nations through the means of missions and evangelism. So those are the four main themes I think here. Four main things I think this story demonstrates all about the gospel. Jesus cares for the outcasts. 
this marvelous faith of this outsider, God's heartbeat for the nations, and the reality of heaven and hell. All of that comes together, right, in the gospel? So how should we respond? What, 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 what kinds of concerns should this, stir, this story stir up in us? Right? Matthew's after something. Why is he, why is he writing this? Why, why is he recounting this story to you? I think it's to raise up some concerns in your heart. First, I think this story should stir up a Christ-like concern for the outcast. The first two miracles in Matthew 8 are miracles aimed squarely at outcasts. A leper and an occupying soldier. I think that should stir in my heart the same kind of love for the outcast. And friends, they're all around us. The outcasts are all around us. We must not be content to live out our Christianity only with people who are in our circles. You know what I mean? People who are, we, we can't just do life in our COVID bubbles. Remember that term, COVID bubble? That lamentable idea that we should do life only with a select few people so that we don't spread COVID. It didn't work, I don't think. Regardless, we cannot just live in our bubbles. And I know why we want to, right? I, I know why I want to. I want to stay in my bubble because my bubble is comfortable. I, I like my bubble. It's less comfortable for me to go outside that bubble and reach out to the leper or to the outcast. But I believe we're called to that. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he had compassion on the outcasts. And I think this story, one of the things this story ought to do is stir in our heart a concern and a compassion for the outcasts that are all around us in this world. People who desperately need the gospel of grace. People who desperately need to see Jesus as you have seen him. I think it ought to stir up evangelism and outreach. Second, and connected to that, this story, because of the heartbeat of God that we see here, should stir up in our hearts a concern for the nations. I mean, you want to have the heartbeat of God, right? You want to have that heartbeat that God has? Well, his heartbeat's for the nations. It's very clear in our passage that God is after the nations and that he will be exalted and glorified in every language and by every people. God will be glorified in every language. And that means that he, the means that he uses to gather them are Christians who are concerned about the global heartbeat of God. A concern which translates into faithful going and faithful sending. I want to bring to our attention, just that we're wrapping up, I want to bring our attention to another passage that brings together two themes that I see in our passage, okay? Another passage in Matthew that brings up the two themes, the authority of Christ and God's heart for the nations, okay? You can see it in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority, there's his authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's his authority. There's his heartbeat for the nations. And how is he using his authority there? 
by commanding us to go to the nations. We should be faithful in our sending and faithful in our going. And my last concern that I think is stirred up by this passage brings me back to that would you rather game. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be a Roman soldier. I'd rather be a Roman outsider with true faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ than the most religious looking person on the planet who is simply going through the motions. What a stark contrast here. And it ought to, it ought to concern us. For the, the contrast here, for the one there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. And for, for the other, there is reclining at the table in glory in, in Christ. Let this passage stir up in your heart a concern for true faith in Jesus Christ, for yourself and those you talk to, for yourself and those you disciple, for your children. Parents, we are not just raising our kids so that they go to church. We're not just raising our kids so that they, they're members of churches. We're raising our children with the hopes that they would trust the gospel, believe in Jesus and follow him for real. We must not be content with simply going through the motions. Jesus was not content with it. And there's a warning here and that ought to concern us and for ourselves too. Now, let me just say this in closing. If your faith is in Jesus Christ and not in all those other things, then your faith is well-placed. Well-placed. I could see that from this passage too. Your faith is well-placed. Faith in Christ is well-placed faith. Let me remind you in closing of where this story leaves off. The result of God's grace in the life of this man, at least what we can see so far, the result of God's grace that he exercised through the marvelous faith of this Roman centurion. Verse 13 says, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The servant was healed. Marvelous faith meets amazing grace in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would stir up in our hearts those kinds of concerns. A concern for the outcast. A concern for, for one who feels outside of your grace, outside of your mercy. A concern for those who are lost. And Lord, I pray that it would stir up in our hearts as a church, especially a concern for the nations, a concern for this, these sheep that you're gathering from the east and from the west, your sheep. And Lord, I pray that it would stir in our hearts a concern for genuine, real faith over and above religious motions. Help us to believe in you, Jesus. And help us to encourage other people to believe in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.